This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me right here is Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Joining us very soon will be Peter Moylan of the Kansas City Royals, who we're very excited about. Matt, how are you? Playoff baseball is happening. It's been fun. It has been very fun. So uh, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we saw the, the Dodgers beat the Cubs 6-0 last night in Game 3 of the NLCS. And uh, Rich Hill, I think, is the story. Rich Hill is always the story, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons I'm going to read you one of his quotes from last night that our own Adam McAvey got, which I thought was great. This is Rich Hill talking about uh, his curveball. Rich Hill says, I think it's one of those things, if you have a pitch that's better than your other pitches, you throw it more, and percentage-wise, it should work out in your favor. Here's the part of this quote, why we're talking about this on the StatCast podcast. If you can execute it, then we can talk about spin rate. We can talk about all these things. The higher the spin rate, the more break, the more depth on the breaking ball, the more vertical drop you can have. I love that there's a big league ball players talking like that. How cool is that? It's very cool. And um, obviously, Rich Hill knows what he's talking about, because basically, as we've talked about a couple times in the podcast before, he transformed his career Basically, when you decide, you know what, like, I'm just going to throw my curveball as much as I can get away with. He threw his curveball uh, 49% of the time this year, almost 50% of the time. That's the highest curveball rate on record going back to 2007. Nobody throws their curveball like that. Now, obviously, we know that he does because it's a very high spin curveball. Uh, his curveball spin this year, 2,833 RPMs. That's the second highest uh, minimum of 500, which unfortunately minimums out Seth Lugo. But we'll go with he has the second highest curveball spin. Uh, and that's a big deal because the Cubs, for all of the great things the Cubs can do, they do not hit curveballs. They had the lowest exit velocity in baseball, uh, 84.3 against curveballs. They hit 211 against curveballs, which I think was eighth worst. It was definitely below average. Um, it's a pretty good strategy if you've got a very good curveball to go attack a team that cannot hit curveballs, and I think that's what we saw last night. It was a pitcher who not only throws curveballs more than anyone has ever thrown them in a season, he then went out and threw them even more than that. 55, it was 55% last night? 55% last night uh, of, of his pitches were curveballs. His season high is 57, but as I said, his average is, is 49, so more than usual. Uh, and he also... He also snapped off nine that went 3,000 RPM or higher. Uh, 11 was a season high, but still nine is pretty good. You don't see a lot of guys doing that. I looked at the leaderboard of the most, you know, uh, 3,000 RPMs, and it's pretty much four or five guys who are the top, like, 20 spots. You know, it's like him, Lugo, Jesse Hahn, Lance McCullers. There's, like, a very small subsection of guys who can do this, and he's very near the top of that list. Yeah, and a lot of people often ask, um, more Mike than me, but me too, sort of what does spin rate mean as it applies to curveballs? And, you know... Rich Hill alluded to that in his comments that uh, Mike just said, just uh, read back, which is basically like it le- generally leads to more movement. It's not necessarily a direct correlation, but you know if you get the right direction, the ball will drop more. And you know there is when you look at performance on pitches high spin, high spin curveballs above three thousand RPMs, the league hit one sixty against them. Uh, swing strike rate above ten percent. You go below twenty four hundred, the league hit two twenty nine against them. Swing strike rate rate of eight point four percent. So you see the difference there: the higher spin rate, more swing strikes, lower, much lower batting average. Yeah, and I think this is one instance where it's actually okay to use batting average because we don't care about walks at this point. We just want to know, like, when you make contact with the ball, can you turn it into a base hit? Uh, and there's a pretty clear difference there. So 
you know, a high spin curveball, it moves more, it drops into the dirt, depending on the angle you throw it. Uh, you do not want a curveball to hang up. That's a very bad curveball. That curveball will go 500 feet. Um, I thought this was cool from our friend Darren Woman. Rich Hill this year, when he gets to a full count, when he gets to a three and two count, 85% of the time he will drop that curveball in there. That's awesome. You know, like most guys wouldn't do that because they would fear the walk or they'd fear throwing the ball in the dirt. And so my initial thought was, how could you possibly watch a curveball go by on three and two? And that's what Jorge Soler did last night. He uh, he watched strike three in the fourth. Now, to be fair, Chris Bryant was maybe looking for a curveball and he watched a four-seam fastball go by in the first inning. So maybe it's not so simple. And then to end the sixth, this is my favorite sequence of the game, 3-1 pitch to Rizzo, Drops in a curveball. Obviously, Rizzo was not looking for it because he just just stood there staring at it. Next pitch, Hill drops the 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 arm angle, goes the Laredo pitch. The Laredo, <laughs> <laughs> eighty seven mile an hour fastball. Rizzo swung swung right through it. Yeah. So he you know he mixes up the arm angle. He throws in the big looping curve, which no one really throws. You know he threw it a bunch of times last night on zero zero counts to get ahead in the count. Just kind of the get me over you know, big looping curveball, which you don't really see anyone do. He's a, he's a fun pitcher to watch. Yeah, and as we were talking about earlier, he doesn't drop all of his curves low. He throws a lot of high curves. Whether that's on purpose, I don't know. Maybe he's still trying to figure out how this high spin curve works. Maybe it's to get in the hitter's head. It's, it's very unusual, I think, but it's a whole lot of fun to watch. And it obviously works for him, too, because, you know, for people who didn't watch Rich Hill a lot this season, last night might have seemed a little fluky, but minimum 100 innings pitched, he had the second lowest ERA in baseball behind only Clayton Kershaw. So the guy was pretty dominant this year. He was dominant for the last month of 2015. So this wasn't a fluke. So you can argue the Dodgers have the two best starting pitchers in baseball. I'm not going to let you refute that. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, before we bring in Peter Moylan, and obviously one of the reasons we want to talk to Peter Moylan, he's a relief pitcher. Uh, and the story of this postseason has to be the fact that relievers and closers are being used uh, in ways we've never really seen before, right? I mean, we've seen in past postseasons, we've seen managers be a little more aggressive, but that's usually means bring them in maybe for a four or a five out save. You know, Joe Torre used to bring in Rivera in the eighth in the postseason fairly regularly. You know, last year in game five of the NLDS, uh, Familia had a six out save against the Dodgers. So you would you would see this, but it wasn't, it was not every game. Every time I see Andrew Miller and Kenley Jansen pitch, all I can think to myself is, oh, Orioles fans must feel even worse. Um, but I, I have to say, Kenley Jansen, uh, last night it was interesting. He came in, obviously he's had a fantastic postseason. We saw what he did in Washington, the, the first game of the Cup Series. He came in last night. The Dodgers are already up 4 nothing. Uh, it was top eight, two outs, and there's a man on second base. Chris Bryant was up. Okay, so that's a reasonably big situation. Strikes Chris Bryant out. That's great. Uh, the Dodgers then would tack on two more runs. Now it's 6 nothing. He came back out for the ninth inning, up 6 nothing. had to throw 15 more pitches. I, I was really surprised by that. I, I, you know, I guess at this point, Dave Roberts has earned the right to do pretty much whatever he wants. But it's not like they're off days. I mean, the Dodgers are playing another game today, maybe another one tomorrow. You kind of would think that's a great opportunity to, to rest him a little bit. Somebody else should be expected to hold a six-run lead. Do you agree? Yeah, I thought it was a, a you know, I don't want to say a, a monumental mistake by Roberts, but it seemed to me a, a, a pretty big mistake. If you don't, if you can't trust Pedro Baez to hold a six-run lead, then like, why is he on the why is he on the roster? Or, or anybody? Or anyone? You, know. you know, so it's like this year there was one game the entire season where a team blew a six-run lead in the ninth inning. One. One. And I know the Cubs are the Cubs, and I get that, but you, you can't treat it as there's no tomorrow because there literally is a tomorrow. And the, the fact of the matter is, you know, part of the reason you're able to use your relievers so much more in the postseason, the regular season, and you're able to, you know, like use Jansen like Roberts did in Game 5 of the NLDS where he brought him in for 50-plus pitches is that there are so many extra off days. But the the one – there are two scenarios in which you really have to manage more like the regular season, which is the middle three games in the LCS – 
and the World Series where there is not there are no off days. Right. So this was and this was the first of those three games, and we don't know how these next two days are going to play out. Now it basically says like. If I have to bring in Jansen for six outs tonight or tomorrow, it's, it's a little more of the roll of the dice. Jansen is not used to this kind of usage. Maybe he'll be fine, but there was no reason to, to, to risk it last night with a, with a six-run lead. My, my favorite stat about this is there's a stat called leverage index, and you know, it looks at the base out state and the game situation to say how really important was this situation. So an average leverage index or a neutral leverage index is simply one. Right, uh, and uh, high leverage is considered to be two or above. Low average, low leverage is uh, below 0.85. So, for example, when Clayton Kershaw was pitching in the ninth inning of Game Five of the NLDS uh, with two outs against Wilmer Defoe, leverage index there 6.65. It was like the highest possible leverage you could you could ask for. Uh, last night, Kenley Jansen. 0.05 and 0.03 in a couple of those at bats. It's basically like non-existent. You could have had Justin Turner pitching. I think that's probably a bit much, but you know you get the point. It's weird to expand Jansen in that situation. Yeah, I think I think it was it's it's a move that definitely Roberts definitely left himself open for second guessing if he needs a six out you know sort of a six out save tonight um, or tomorrow and Jansen just doesn't look like himself. Especially since, as big a fan I am of uh, Julio Urias, he's not expected to go deep into the game. Uh, you know, obviously, by the time you listen to this, you might have already known what happened, but we don't yet. And uh, Urias is, is probably not going to give you seven, eight innings. You're going to need that bullpen tonight. So I think that's, you know, not to criticize Dave Roberts, has done a pretty good job, I think. That was a really interesting decision uh, last night. And exactly. And this is, you know, we're about to bring in Pete Moylan. This is exactly the kind of thing we want to talk about, because not just Jansen, Andrew Miller has sort of been the star of the post, maybe the breakout star of the postseason, being used in sort of this, 1970s Goose Gossage kind of role where he's coming in in the fifth, sixth, seventh inning and pitching, you know, facing, you know, seven or eight batters and typically striking out six or seven of them. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion of whether or not there's we're going to see a quote-unquote bullpen revolution out of this. Um, the usage of Jansen last night suggests that maybe we should pump the brakes a little bit on that because that was about as conservative of relief usage as you could possibly imagine. Um, but uh, we're very interested to see, you know, Pete, hear Pete's thoughts on on sort of this topic. Peter Moylan has been a big league pitcher for parts of 10 seasons. He's been teammates with Kenley Jansen and Wade Davis and Craig Kimbrell, so he knows a little bit about elite closers. Uh, so let's welcome him in like right now and uh, get some of his thoughts. So as we've been talking about, uh, Matt and myself, and now we have Peter Moylan on the line, it's uh, the biggest story of the postseason has really been the evolution of the bullpen, the, the changing way relievers are used. It's not just the closer for three outs in the ninth. Um, and what I've been thinking is this probably is going to be a change as the as the years go on, we're not going to see the old traditional way of relief pitching anymore. But uh, I'm not a big leaguer, and and Peter Moylan here is, and Peter. So I'm really fascinated to to get your thoughts on you know what you think the change will be sort of over a long six month regular season in the way these closers and high leverage relievers are used uh, compared to a shorter postseason series. I honestly don't think that that um, they'd be able to maintain the same click that they're doing right now during the playoffs. I, I've never seen anything like this. The only thing I can sort of liken it to was. A few years ago, you know, you'd see the teams send out their third and fifth starters or third to fifth starters out to the pen and come in and use them in relief roles instead of the relievers that have been throwing all year, which I was not a big fan of. Um, you know, you'd have these guys that start all year and then all of a sudden they're going to go out the bullpen in an unfamiliar role and they're going to go out there and try and get out. Um, but as far as using closers in the seventh inning, I mean, I, I don't... I. You, you just can't do it for the 162-game season, I don't think. Playoffs are a different story. Obviously, the adrenaline's different. Um, you know, once you get that 
once you get the extra cameras and the extra lights, it's, it's sort of you feel no pain, so you can almost do anything. But I don't think they could maintain it over 162 games. Well, I think you make a good point that over a six-month season, you can't have guys out there throwing two or three innings um, every single night. But if it's not so much about the length, what do you think about the uh, the time the guys come in? Like, do you think that we could see you know the best mm-hmm. relievers maybe not just in the ninth inning, maybe more uh, you know Kenley Jansen or so in the seventh inning if it's a big spot next year, or is even that just only a postseason approach for you? I don't know how I'm going to see it. I, I can only comment on how I, I would like to see it done. And I think um, the, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest frustration that, that I have is that you know the game's on the road. You know when when it's you see the closer sitting out there in the ninth inning and and they're reluctant to use them. And, and uh, I think that if if it's that spot where the game is on the line and the game in May is just as important as the game in September, even though it's not. You know, a week before the playoffs. Um, so I, I think you may see a lot more managers using a closer in the eighth inning with two runners on and two outs instead of saving them for that ninth inning because that you may not ever get to. Um, and I know that's the argument that's been thrown at me for years and years and years. Twelve months ago, I was completely against it. I said, no, you've got to have your closer out there. You've got to have your closer ready to get those last three outs or the hardest three outs in the game, that sort of stuff. I was a bit old school about it. But I think now that I've seen it in in, in action... I kind of like the idea of having that. Your number one guy, your your guy that's going to come in and get whoever you want him to get out at that big situation, because you may not get to the, the bottom of the night. I think uh, I think Baltimore fans might agree with you on that. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it kind of goes to another question. I do think a big part of why Andrew Miller has been so good at this is that uh, he's got the right attitude. He's been pretty open that he doesn't care when he pitches. He's like, put me in, you know, when it's the best uh, time. Yeah. And we've also seen other pitchers be pretty open that you know they they do not want to leave the ninth inning. And and so I'm curious. You know, you've played with a lot of different pitchers. Which approach do you think is more prevalent? And do you think that attitude could change? I think it. I think it will change. Um, obviously, in the playoffs, you know that's the correct attitude to have. Use me whenever you want to use me. It doesn't matter. I'm here to throw whenever you need me in the biggest situations. But over the course of 162 games, I'm not sure. You know, because the closers get themselves ready for for the ninth inning. They're in. They're inside. They're getting treatment. They're getting themselves ready for that ninth inning. I think that to get their routine thrown off a little bit because they may have to be ready in the sixth or seventh or the eighth. I'm not sure how that'll work. I also am not sure how it will work when it comes to free agent time or arbitration time or all that sort of stuff. Because it's always been, well, you have this amount of saves, you have this amount of, you know, it's, it's, is it going to work differently now? Because these number one, two, three, four, five closes in the game are getting hold instead of saves. I'm not sure how that how it's all going to go down. So why do you think Andrew Miller has been able to have such success sort of in this, you know, he, a couple of years ago he didn't close, then last year he closed left the Yankees. This year he's back to just sort of being the seventh, eighth inning guy. Is he just sort of the exception that proves the rule, or do you think it's possible that maybe we'll see more more pitchers, you know, moved into more of that fireman role as opposed to just the strict ninth inning three-out closer? I think he's had success because he throws 97 miles an hour with a bowling ball sinker and a slider that you can't touch. That's why I think he's had success. You, but can throw him in the, you can throw him in the first inning if you want to, and he'll have success. He's punched out 15 guys over the last 16 in space or something like that. It's, it's beyond ridiculous. Um, but I meant more in terms I think of... I mean, you're right. He, he has the right mindset. He, he says He's told Tito, he said, just use him whenever you want to use me, and, and I'll be ready to go. How much do you think that is because he already has a long-term contract that maybe he doesn't feel like he's got to prove anything? Um, does he have a long-term contract? Is he free agent in a year? He's got a, he, he signed a four-year deal a couple years ago. Year. Just finished his second-year deal. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's... Obviously, you're more comfortable because if you get hurt, you, you're still going to get paid. But at the same time, um, I don't think, for me personally, what kind of money I'm going to make or could make never enters my head when I'm sort of in the middle of the grind of the season. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever told a pitching coach or a manager that I couldn't pitch, whether it was four days in a row, five days in a row, whatever it was. I've always said, yeah, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go, and worry about what happens afterwards. But, um, yeah, I I think he's just an absolute animal. And it's, interestingly, when we were there, um, I would see him start his routine in the fifth inning. You know, he'd get up to the top of the bullpen in Cleveland and he'd start doing his little runs and his stretches, and, and I'm like, wow, fifth inning is a bit early, isn't it? But then you see that, you know, he's ready to go from that fifth inning, and, and if he needs to come in and get the, the biggest out of the game, he's going to be ready to do it. I think national baseball fans are learning what Dodger fans already knew, and that's that Kenley Jansen uh, is an absolutely elite closer. And you were teammates with him. You spent the 2013 season with the Dodgers. Uh, so, you know, I think everybody knew that he was dominant, but are you surprised that he's been able to kind of uh, make it work with this increased usage? We've never really seen him do that before the last couple of weeks. No, I'm uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, he's a, he's a giant. He's 6'6", he's 6'7", six, 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 and he, I, I feel like hitters, look. it looks like he's releasing the ball about 45 feet away from you. Um, and he's got a cutter that is as good as Mariano Rivera's, but it seems to be a little firmer. He doesn't. I don't think he has the control that Rivera had, but he elevates a little more. He he, he doesn't have as much downward action, but he's got that disgusting sideways action. And you saw the swing that... Um, that uh, first baseman for the Cubs. Come on, help me out here. Oh, Rizzo. <laughs> Rizzo. Yeah, how am I going? Yeah. You saw the swing Rizzo took off it last night. He's one of the best hitters I've ever seen. He took he took, uh, he took took a 98-mile-an-hour fastball when I was in Chicago last year out to right field, and he stands right on top of the dish, and it was a fastball inside, and he was able to get his hands in and absolutely demolish this thing, whereas you saw what he did against Kenley last night. That cutter is is disturbingly good. Uh, you have been teammates with Jansen uh, and Wade Davis this year and, and Kimbrell for a couple of years in Atlanta. Obviously, three of the best like closers. Them. Which yeah, of those I've had th- my influence with them. Yeah, well, right. well, I, I want to hear about that, too. But if you were hitting, which one would you least rather face? I know that's an impossible question. Um, I, think I'd, I think I'd least Wade. I wouldn't want to face Wade. Well, why is that? Uh, because I've seen him, especially this year, I've seen him being able to. He'll go three zero on a hitter, like he's playing with him, like like that's what he meant to do. Like I'm going to go three zero on you, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to I'm going to make you look silly on a three two curveball. He he has the ability to throw his cutter, his fastball, his curveball, any count, anytime he wants. So I think that he, there's no there's no structure in the way that he approaches a hitter. I think he knows what he's going to do, but the hitter has no chance. But now I have to ask, what did you do to uh, impact Craig Kimbrell's career? <laughs> when Kimbrell first came up, let me tell you, when Kimbrell first came up, I think it was 2010 or nine, it might have been, but he was not very good. He was, he had great stuff, but he would walk the bases loaded and then punch out the side. It was always, it was always fingers in your mouth because I'd, I would have already pitched when he was coming into a game. So you'd sit there in the locker room, and you're like, oh, man, what's he going to do this time? You know, he would just be all over the place. And then all of a sudden, something clicked, and he just was disgusting. Oh, yeah. But I had no influence on him whatsoever. He, <laughs> he was groomed to be a closer from the minute he got into the Braves organization. 
Yeah, I have to ask you. I see you spent the last season uh, with Kansas City. Uh, a lot of big names in that bullpen, and you were, you know, part of a group that set a team record with 41 and a third straight scoreless innings. Uh, but there mm-hmm. is there is a, a lesser known name there that I found really impressive, and that's Matt Strom. He struck out 30 yeah. in 22 innings this year, uh, allowed only four runs. I don't think he's a name that most people know about. What what should people know about him? You got to, to work with him very closely. They will know him in the next coming years. It depends on whether they're going to make him into a starter or a reliever. But for that kid to come up and do what he did. Um, he wasn't phased. And in fact, the the run that he gave up early on that gave him an ERA, I actually gave it up because he was in Texas. And I came in and, and, I, and I gave up his run. So he would have had a zero ERA until the last few weeks of the season, but I ended up giving up a run. But he's, he's, he's got a fastball that he can elevate. It's, it was anywhere from sort of 93 to 97. Um, he's got a good breaking ball. He's got a good change-up. Um, as I said, it's, it's going to depend on whether they want him to be a starter next year or, or a reliever. But I think if I was if I was the GM, which I'm obviously not, I would let him continue to relieve and continue to be a dominant left-handed reliever, much like Andrew Miller, if he if he gets a few more years under his belt. Cool. I want to switch gears for a second and ask you a little bit about the uh, the World Baseball Classic because if you'll indulge me for a minute, um, I covered the first World Baseball Classic, the first pool round in 2006 in Orlando. And I remember it vividly because out of nowhere, an Australian pitcher came in throwing 97 and he struck out Bobby Abreu and Maglio Ordonez. Marco Scudero, Mar- and this, Hernandez. And this was March 9th, 2006. <laughs> and then on March 10th, 2006, this re- reliever signed with the Atlanta Braves and went on yeah. to have a 10-year career. Can you tell us a little about how the World Baseball Classic sort of affected your career and your, your role in the, the upcoming version in 2017? I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for the World, World Baseball Classic. Um, you know, I came over when I got released early on with the, by the Twins. I thought I'd, I'd squandered any opportunity I was going to have to pitch in the big leagues. So, for me to get a chance to pitch against those guys at the World Baseball Classic, it was my it was my goal it was to get there and to, to have fun and to prove that I could have done it to myself. Then the next day, the Braves offered me a contract. Um, I was a pharmaceutical rep at the time, so it wasn't like I was struggling. I, I, was, I had a good job. I was I was comfortable in my life, but they offered me this contract, and I said to myself, uh, you're going to kick yourself five years down the line if you say no to this, so you better you better give it a chance. Um, so I signed with the Braves the next day, and I was in the big leagues six weeks later. But World Baseball Classic was something that, that is very special to me because it gave me my shot, but at the same time, I haven't been able to pitch in it for the last two because I've been either hurt or through too many innings or whatever it was, so... We had the classic qualifier in February in Sydney. I went down there to to, uh, to pitch in that, and we ended up qualifying. So we've got the actual classic coming up in March this year, and, and I'm excited. It'll be the first time that I've pitched for Australia since that 06 World Baseball Classic. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, Peter, last question for you. Uh, you had a pretty good year with the Royals this year. You were the Royals Pitcher of the Month for September. Uh, but I believe you're going to mm-hmm. be a free agent this winter. What's, what's next for you? Still sticking with Kansas City, or what do we see going forward? I have no idea. They have the, I guess they have the rights to me um, for this first week after the World Series. Um, uh, but then after that, I, I could possibly become a free agent. Um, honestly, I, I would love to stay in Kansas City. I really enjoyed my time there. I think the front office is the best that I've ever been involved with. Uh, the training staff are fantastic. And uh, and they, they treat their guys the right way. And I, I, as you said, I had, a, I had a great time there. I had a, the best year I've had since 2010. Um, I think uh, it'll be mutually beneficial if I could stay there. So if you could somehow get this recording to Dayton, it would be perfect. 
We'll work on that. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for your time. We won't we won't keep you from the driving range anymore. Uh, that's Peter Moyle and most recently the Royals. Follow him at Peter Moyle, and he's a very good Twitter follower. Uh, follow, excuse me. Peter, thanks so much for your time. No problem, guys. So extremely high praise from Peter Moyle for the Kansas City Royals. We're going to have to work our contacts and see if we can get uh, Dayton Moore to listen to this because uh, he seems to really enjoy the Royals organization. I thought that was cool. And he really liked the World Baseball Classic. <laughs> the Royals seem to have done well by relief pitchers the last few years, so I could see why a relief pitcher would want to stay there. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I thought it was really interesting the way that a, a player approaches the way relief pitchers are, are used or are being used because we look at the, uh, the way uh, relievers have been used this postseason and it almost seems like, well, it's a slam dunk. Of course, you should use guys like that. But it's not the same over a six-month season. I thought it was interesting the way he thought about that. And and the fact that he said he's changed his tune a little bit. That was great. And that's it seems like, you know, to hear him say that he thinks that maybe the first shift will be kind of the, the Zach Britton situation where managers will start using their their closers on the I'm road more. On the road. I think I said this last last episode. It's only been like two and a half weeks since the American League wildcard game. And already I just cannot even imagine anybody ever doing that ever again. That That's the biggest shift in the landscape, I think. I think Peter was right on with that. Definitely. Uh, he was really uh, – I enjoyed him a lot. That was Peter Moylan. Uh, I'm Mike Petriello. That's Matt Myers. Join us next week on the MLB.com StatCast podcast.